a standard classroom environment is really bad. And it's not because the teachers aren't doing their best, it's just the structure is bad. You know, my wife was a third grade teacher and it's impossible to teach a random selection of eight-year-olds division, teaching the same class of 30 people, the same material, and they're going to be on wildly different levels. And, you know, take that for every subject and that's going to be true. Whereas if it was more adaptive to who they are and what they need, every single student would do far better. And so I'm really, really excited for a world where that's true. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. When it comes to behavior change, thinking about extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivation. They can be very different things in the approach. But for Austin Allred, co-founder of Lambda School, a company that focuses on building and educating people to become developers, people who don't have previous experience in software engineering. Well, it's analogous to levels in the fact that some people who start to use our platform don't have prior experience in metabolic health. And so we have to start to think about if we're creating a product that helps people to understand their metabolic health and all their biometric data, what intrinsic motivation do we need? What extrinsic motivators do we need in the platform as far as giving people the appropriate feedback and the timely feedback to be able to make meaningful behavior change? And so Austin and I sat down and we talked about everything pertaining to education, what he's doing with Lambda, how it applies to levels and what we're building from a product and community standpoint. It was a very meaningful conversation. Here's where we kick things off. Are you, are you staying in Utah now? Like, is that your new home base? Yeah, well, I mean, we have a house here, but then I do like a, a week in San Francisco and I do a couple days in Miami. I don't know. We're figuring it out. We're going to be pretty nomadic. So we'll see. But this, it's, the right, <laughs> it's the right cheap home base. Um, it's really nice right next to an airport. You can buy a giant house with a pool for like half a million bucks. So it's crazy. That's great. I mean, that's the thing about living in Ohio or living in like Utah or like Wichita, Kansas. Like you're just going to get a lot of value for money. And now. Oh, it's crazy. Yeah. You know, like especially with what what you're building, it's like you're building knowledge workers and knowledge workers have the ability to be anywhere. And now with people stripping away the heuristic that being in a clustered tech market means that you're smart. Like now people are like, oh, you could be from Fargo and it's totally cool. And no one really gives a shit. Like, that's pretty interesting. You know, when Lambda School had a remote office or a San Francisco office, we had a Utah office. I was like, yeah, you know, remote. All of our students are remote, but like, it's so good to be in the office with everybody. When we made the hard transition to like fully remote, I was like, why am I in San Francisco? And I think there's some folks like that transition sucked, but it wasn't my fault because there was COVID, right? It would have been mm -hmm. way more difficult to transition from office to no office without it. And there's still some people that are just like, look, I need an office. I need to be hanging out. And, you know, that's tough because they're not going to be happy in the long run. But I think 95% of the company was like, my life is so much better now. And, you know, 
if you do it the right way, it works really well. So I'm, I'm not quite like I would never go back to being in an office. I think it's, you know, depends on the mission of the company and, and what you're building. But for Lambda School, I can't imagine trying to get everybody into an office, even like hiring. Like, how did we hire people in San Francisco when everybody mm-hmm. else was trying to do the same thing? It's mm-hmm. bonkers. Yeah, you compete for talent on such a different level. And then as soon as you open it up and you start to look at talent where there aren't geographic constraints, you realize that, especially when it comes to like dev work, right? Where it's just about execution of task. And you're like, there are some really smart people in these hidden pockets. And it opens up a new world. It opens up, it is a strategic advantage if you, especially if you do have like a fully remote team. What's really hard is, when you get into the hybrid models where it's like, well, some of us are in an office and some of us aren't. And then you get these two distinct cultures and people are like, oh, you missed the office conversation. And you're like, well, where we made a decision and you're like, well, we have to figure out a better way of having like having unity in the way that we communicate. There's a time when a third of Lambda was in San Francisco, a third was in an office and then a third was remote. And we had like a couple remote execs. We had you know an exec in... Utah and a lot of the execs happen to be in San Francisco. And pretty often we would hear from people like, you know, I'm not getting the information I need. I'm out of the loop because I'm remote. And then I would talk to the people who are in the office and be like, hey, and they're saying the same thing. Right. And so I think it was easy to have that remote scapegoat. And people were like, oh, you know, we're not very good at passing information because, you know, it's only getting passed around in the San Francisco office. But it wasn't even getting passed around in San Francisco, right? So it, it created a forcing function for us to be like, okay, we need, to, we need to document this stuff. We need to share it more broadly. We need to, you know, we're getting to a point where I, every once in a while I hear, okay, like I get it. I don't, you know, you don't need to send me all this information from what's happening in this other org that has no relevance to me whatsoever. And we were the polar opposite of that three years ago. I don't know how it will shape out in the long run, but I think it's something we, we were forced to get much, much better at. And when I look at some fully remote companies that are, you know, building everything in a handbook or with a lot of looms and, you know, have a really strong document culture, being remote forces you to do that in a way that would have been healthy in an office, but you use the office as a crutch to not do as much of that. So I think, you know, similarly to how Amazon has to be better at giving you certain types of information than it would if it was just a department store. For example, navigation, you just rely on the physical layout for stuff. But sometimes when you go into a physical store, it's still really difficult to navigate, whereas Amazon has to, you know, have that more nailed down. So I think it's one of those, you eliminate a lot of the crutches that you used to have and not even realize that you have. And that's, that's probably doubly true in an education sense. Like once you remove the, can I look around the classroom and see what everybody's doing right now? You can actually replace it in a lot of instances with something that's better, where mm-hmm. it's not knowing where a student is, isn't based on looking around the room and talking to them individually and seeing what they're doing. You just have data in real time about everybody. And once you have that data, not only can you get the data, but you can actually you know, guide and shift that experience in real time in a way that you could have done in a physical classroom, but you just weren't going to. So I think, you know, when you eliminate the crutches and you use technology to replace them, oftentimes you can actually replace them with something better, which I think is really interesting. What you've done from a business model perspective is interesting and how that 
applies to people's lives, right? So like the the parallel between levels and Lambda, which is like very interesting, is we're focused on giving people different opportunities with their health, right? We show them how food affects their, their metabolic health. It's data or feedback that they've never seen before. And they say, wow, this is life-changing. And th- like the parallel is that it doesn't take that much scrolling through Twitter. Let's just use that as a single platform to find some tweet that says, I have changed my life because of Lambda School, right? Like people, there are all these unbelievable community stories about I was working in some like minimum wage job and I had zero experience, like no technical literacy at all, zero experience with computers. And I really didn't know anything and I felt overwhelmed, but I signed up, went through Lambda and now I'm making a very healthy income and I bought a house and like my life has changed. And so it's like, when you hear these stories, they like replace Lambda with levels and granted one has to do with economics and furthering your career path and the other has to do with health. So like they're unrelated in that respect, but it's giving people a different opportunity to like really feel agency over their life in sort of these different aspects of finances or career trajectory and then like health and wellness. So yeah, it's it's just so cool what you've done. But when you started to think about building out community, what are ways that you've you've engaged people to do it? Is it organic or is it something that you guys sort of like build within the the business model? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because the way we started Lambda School was actually just by teaching free classes. So we would, it was basically in the early days, we threw everybody in Slack and then we would have a Zoom that was scheduled and we would, you know, at channel everybody, hey, the Zoom is going live right now. And we would have, you know, thousands of people you know, at the time, Zoom didn't have a big enough overflow. So we'd also live stream it to YouTube. So, you know, you had Slack, there was a chat there, you had a Zoom chat, and then you had YouTube chat. And it just like, we use Slack was our early crutch where like, you know, it's not built to be a place for a school to happen necessarily. But it was something that we could pull off the shelf. And, you know, your people are divided up into cohorts and they have channels and they can send messages and they can drop code snippets and they can, you know, message with each other. They can message with an instructor. We can create help channels. So it was, you know, super chaotic in the early days, but it was just like, let's just get people in the same digital environment and let them interact with each other. And there are a few places that that falls apart and is suboptimal. The first is that Slack is not meant to be a permanent medium. It's, free-flowing. And if you miss it, you know, you can scroll back, but you, you don't. Uh, if you miss it, you miss it. It doesn't do a good job of, I mean, it has archive and it has search, but it's not built for that the same way. You know, so now we've built tooling where, you know, if I need help on an assignment, I go to what we call the hub and I can, you know, I start asking my question in the hub. And I often see that, you know, 800 other people have asked this question before. And here's the best answer for that. So that is kind of bifurcated from the, you know, let's be together as a community. Before COVID, we would, we started doing something that was really cool. We had, you know, in-person meetups, which in the early days, you know, part of the thesis of Lambda School was, A, we wanted to reach people, you know, who aren't in a position to move to San Francisco necessarily. And, you know, so, and specifically, you know, me, I moved out to Silicon Valley and lived in a car and I moved there from, you know, small town Utah with 4,000 people. There literally was not a code boot camp within, you know, a several hour drive of that location. And when I'd go back, everybody would say, you know, 
hey, you know, I want to do what you did. I want to figure out, and I didn't attend a boot camp. I taught myself everything. But how can I follow that same path? And there wasn't a great thing for me to recommend. There wasn't, you know, I couldn't point to something and say, do that. So the original thesis was just, let's reach all the people in hard to reach places and let's do it using technology. And, you know, then if you look at Code Bootcamp's financials, a non-trivial amount of their spend goes to, you know, real estate and physical location. And then they base everything off of how many students can I get in that room at that time, which then means I have to turn that room over four times a year if I want to, you know, break even, which then means I have to have my school be three months long because I need to get people out of that classroom. So it's when you break those barriers down, the cost structure is different. The accessibility is different. So really it was actually the earliest focus was just building something online, which feels obvious now in a way that was not obvious in 2016, 2017. And from there, you know, you realize, oh, here are the advantages we have. Here are the disadvantages we have. We can build this to overcome disadvantages. Now that we have this advantage, let's, you know, lever up on that. And it's something that we get slammed for in the press. But when we have a giant, you know, live lecture, we don't focus on the teacher to student ratio for that lecture itself. For We call it a guided project. We can have 500 people be in that if we want to. And then they are working in subgroups with other people where they can get assistance in other ways. And so, you know, traditional educators are like, oh, you have a one to 500 teacher to student ratio. That's bad. And the reason that's bad is because they have a mental model of, oh, if I want to get help, I have to wait in line for 500 people. Yeah. But really, no, your help is coming from a giant team of other people who are there instantly. And that's something that's very difficult to do in a physical environment, but it's obvious in an online environment. And so we can break up and subdivide into classrooms, you know, instantly of people who are stuck on section three of unit two and, you know, the fourth problem set. Now they're instantly together with someone who is focused just on that and working with them. And it's way better than a single teacher running around to all the students trying to handle everything individually. And, you know, we're just starting to get to the next level of that, which is, you know, moving away from the notion that we had something that we called flex, which is, you know, if a student can't complete a sprint or doesn't, you know, can't wrap their mind around a unit, instead of just pushing forward and hoping they'll pick it up along the way, like they can roll back at no cost and repeat it. And that makes a ton of sense in our world in a way that wouldn't necessarily make sense in a, a physical environment. So we had that, but we're slowly moving away from that to, you know, what if a student wants to speed up? What if they know this thing already? How can they, you know, fast forward that? Sometimes it's, you can cut a month or you can cut two months off of the learning because they, you know, they've already done that. Or if, what if I move at a faster pace or what if I move at a slower pace? How can the school and software automatically flex around that and just use the scheduling of instruction time and help in real time to adjust to all those people. So that's kind of the next step is I'm sure in the future we'll have people that takes three months to get through the same content that it takes somebody else a year to get through. And then you can accommodate schedules that, you know, in the early days it was difficult to be on the East Coast because we ran Lambda School, you know, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific, which meant your full time on the East Coast starts at 11 or noon and it ends at five or six. 
or sorry, at seven or eight. And that's really late. And then part-time was, you know, five to eight Pacific or six to nine Pacific, which meant some East Coasters for part-time were getting done at midnight. And that, you know, that was the way we structured things. Now we can break it apart. So, you know, whatever three-hour stint you can attend, it can be six to nine on the East Coast and six to nine on the West Coast. And the shared time will be kind of at the crossover of those. And we'll have help, you know, on both sides of that. So the, the flexibility, the adaptability, the ability to adjust to what a student needs at any given time is just orders of magnitude better than it was in a physical classroom. And that started because we were trying to solve for all the problems, quote unquote, that remote learning has. If you could build a school the way that Lambda School is building it, it's actually detrimental to go to a physical classroom if your goal is to learn things well and quickly, which is super interesting. Yeah, I mean, you you changed the approach, right? Like you focused on the incentive. Like the incentive is to educate people and put out great resources. Like that is the incentive. And so by doing that, you go, what do we have to, what steps do we have to do instead of indexing on like, we need to cover our real estate costs this month. So we just need to fill this with people and get them out as quickly as possible so that we can get to max utilization again. One of the things that we've been working towards is It's similar to what it sounds like you've got with somewhat of a guided journey, which is like micro support where it's like these, what you mentioned with like four people are working on problem 4A section one, like something so granular. And we find the same thing where we're getting these micro communities that people come in with a, a different understanding of metabolic health. Like some people know a ton because they've done a lot of self-education. Other people have no lens on it. And so like you need to sort of find the pockets and the groups that can support each other. But again, being geographically distributed, knowing everybody has different interests, we're aware and we're trying to build against that saying, what does a guided journey look like from a community perspective? And then from a product perspective, so that there's like some overlap in the Venn diagram, but still trying to get to that level of support that feels personalized, as opposed to saying like, here's a CGM, here's levels, there you go, right? Because that's just too generic given that like we're all, everything about metabolic health is so nuanced and everything about learning is so nuanced. I think that's exactly right. It's fascinating watching products that, you know, we kind of moved from a one size fits all model. Like if you onboard, you know, we were talking about Slack earlier, the Slack onboarding is the same for every single person that onboards. It's, you know, here's channels, here are DMs, here, you know, here's how you adjust your profile and like, good luck. And you're, you're thrown into an environment that's, you know, hopefully this works for you. But I, I'm looking at a new kind of generation of products. So in the health space, I think about, you know, a Noom, for example. And Noom, like it, you know, it's, it's onboarding is more about getting to know who you are and adjusting the product to what your specific needs are. So Noom, for those that don't know, is, you know, it's a weight loss app slash community that, tries to key off of a lot of psychology to help you, you know, lose weight. But there's a big difference between, you know, I'm 500 pounds and I'm morbidly obese and I eat 5,000 calories a day and like, yeah, I'm 10 pounds overweight, but I can't shed the last 10 pounds. And there's, you know, difference physiologically, male versus female. There's a difference in eating habits. There's difference in exercise, you know. And so building a product that can accommodate all of those people at once is difficult and expensive from a product standpoint. But then when it's there, it's so much more powerful than like, here is how you count calories. Like, you know, 
we're going to take a wild guess at how many calories you should be eating a day or, you know, like fill out this form and then we'll spit out, you know, okay, your calorie, your calorie intake should be X and your macros should be Y versus one of the things that makes me really excited about levels is like levels will have a level of data that other folks don't, right? Like levels could in the long run be a completely different product based on, you know, if, if your blood glucose is in low levels and you're not, if you eat rice, it doesn't matter versus, you know, if I eat a bowl of granola, my glucose spikes or whatever it is that you're measuring and keying off of, it can react totally differently. And I think that's the, you know, it's one of the reasons I, you know, invested in levels. And I think it's really, really exciting is not only can you get all of this new data, which that's what we learned in the early days of Lambda School, like, oh my gosh, I can know how a student is doing every moment of every day. And, you know, not only can I, I can go well beyond like, are they raising their hand because they're stuck or not? I can know, you know, this person is a 92 out of 100 at React and they're a 10 out of 100 at Python. Those two may not, you know, always happen yeah, at the same time. Yeah, yeah. If you're not going to react, you're probably better. But anyway, I think at scale customization is really, really interesting. And I think some products are do, have been doing that already where if I log into Amazon, it's a completely different experience than if you log into Amazon because it knows our history, it knows. And I think that level, combining that with, you know, instead of shopping or consuming content, combining that with what should I be doing? I think about, you know, what is my personal dashboard? What habits should I be forming? What behaviors should I be shifting? That's incredibly powerful. I think health is one of the most, to me, one of the most exciting places to apply that because it is so customized. Like it has to be customized. And education is another one where my health is completely different than my wife's health, even if we're eating the same thing every day. The way I experience an educational product is completely different than the way my wife experiences an educational product, even if the content is exactly the same. So I think that's kind of the frontier. And I'm really, really excited to see what happens with that. Have you been building, like in product, have you been building loops that give people personalization so that it's it's sort of like you get as granular as you can and then like indexing that with community to find that support? Like how have you been doing that as you've been bringing more and more people through? One of the things we're working on now, if I said that we're doing a great job of it today, I'd be, I'd be lying. There's actually a study in the, the 1980s by a gentleman named Bloom that basically showed, and so they did a you know, very intensive study on different learning approaches and different learning environments. So they had you know, a traditional classroom environment and they would take students who had you know, the same level of experience, the same IQ range. You know, they, did, they did all of the important work in selection and then they taught those students a set of things in a traditional classroom. And then they had another set where they had a traditional classroom, but it was mastery-based. So you don't move on from one subject to the next until you've mastered, you know, until you've at least completed or you know, demonstrated understanding in one thing. And then you kind of move on to the next classroom. And then the third was one-on-one mentorship, right? So you have a full-time mentor who's sitting there watching over your shoulder and the crazy thing about that study is they found, you know, not only was there a difference in the ability to learn, but the median student in the personalized mastery-based kind of the one-on-one environment performed at the 98th percentile of the traditional classroom. So literally the median student was, you know, 
and they they call it Bloom's Two Sigma problem. Like the median student with adaptive learning in, in an adaptive learning environment was doing better than 98% of the other students in a traditional classroom. That kind of shift and empirically demonstrated is so crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Like think about who the smartest one or two percent of people are in a traditional classroom, and you can get half of the class to that level. That's like, that's a massive, massive shift. And then, you know, so what is the response in the education community to that? The response is, well, that's great, but we can't afford to hire a personal tutor for every single student. Like that's just, you know, that's not feasible. So really nothing changed. But what we're seeing with adaptive software I've seen a couple of schools that have done this really, really well, is not only can, we're actually seeing students with the right level adaptive software outperform students who have one-on-one full-time mentorship, because the software is, can be even better at adapting to that student's needs and you know, isn't like trying to keep a mental log of what a student knows and doesn't and can you know, put back repetition of what they haven't learned yet at levels that are better than a human. And I've seen, you know, we're in the very early stages of seeing this in education, but I've literally visited elementary schools that are based on this adaptive level of product-like learning, and they can easily move a student from the bottom 10 percentile of a public school to the top 10 percentile in a year. And we're, you know, we're now seeing students who, and this is, you know, K through 12, we're working on getting it into high, you know, post-secondary, but you know, we're talking students who have a perfect SAT score and fives on a bunch of AP tests and are done with the high school curriculum at 12 or 13. And so they have a problem. Like, what, do we, <laughs> what do we do with these kids for the next five years, right? But not only is their performance you know, superior to a private school, they're absolutely crushing a student with the same background, same demographic, same IQ level, is absolutely crushing a kid at a $50,000 a year private school. And that's one of those things that is not widely distributed yet. I think there are maybe a handful of schools in the U.S. that are doing that. But once that starts to proliferate, the delta in performance is so strong that I can't imagine, I don't know what it will look like, but the people that cue into that and start treating their education differently are just going to have wildly, wildly superior outcomes to the norm today. And not because part of that is, a lot of that is because the norm today is just really suboptimal. It's not because it's, you know, revolutionary. It's just a standard classroom environment is really bad. And it's not because the teachers aren't doing their best. It's just the structure is bad. You know, my wife was a third grade teacher and it's impossible to teach a random selection of eight-year-olds division, teaching the same class of 30 people, the same material, and they're going to be on wildly different levels. And you know, take that for every subject, and that's going to be true. Whereas if it was more adaptive to who they are and what they need, every single student would do far better. And so I'm really, really excited for a world where that's true. The wild thing about that is the intent can be there. So let's say from, let's use the, the analog of like a teacher and a physician, where it's like the intent is there to do what is in the best interest of the student or the patient. But there's always a certain amount of discretion or subjectivity. So let's use a student where it's like, I think you should do your math again. I think we should like spend some time on that. Whereas tooling and an algo is just objectively, 
you're not at the place you need to be, do more math. And then you get to the point, right? You get this feedback loop with health where it's giving you that personalized feedback to say like, keep going, keep going, keep going till you get to the, the level where somebody has enough of a routine with what they're doing from whether it's from a education perspective or health perspective, where that platform and that tooling helps to give you that feedback loop to say like, you are on the right track. And I think the using that insight of the students who became better than 98% of the rest of the class, it's like, you can do the same thing with your health too, where as soon as you have that information in your own hands and you have ownership over it and you can understand it, it's like, there's so much more that you can do because tooling becomes scalable and becomes as objective as possible. And like, sure, we can digress into algorithms can be amazing and they can cause some major challenges too, but that's a different conversation. The idea is that on average, let's say algorithms can help you to perform better, right? Or to get to better places. That's just infinitely scalable to start to bring everything up. Whereas like the bottleneck in education is teachers, like one-to-one relationships. The bottleneck in medicine is one-to-one relationships with physicians. So it's like, okay, well, how can you solve the problem? It's like, well, tooling, like that's just becomes such an easy answer. And then that's where you have to index. So it's, but the hybrid is what exactly what you're building too. And that's what we're trying to get to is tooling plus community, because you still need social support and uh, encouragement and reinforcement that like, hey, Austin, you're doing a great job because the reality is we're all imperfect beings as humans and we don't operate exactly like robots. And so that's where that's where you need sort of like the overlap in that Venn diagram to say we have both components and you can like index a little more on one versus the other. Some people might be heavy on the tooling, like let's say with Lambda, all I need is a tooling and then other people say, nope, I need that community support. So it's like you find your, you find what works for you based on personal interests. Yeah, I think, you know, education went through this phase kind of 10 years ago where our understanding at the time, or, and maybe it's, it's too flippant to say our understanding, but if you ask people what they thought of as education, they would say like, yeah, you know, lectures with really smart people, good curriculum, somebody breaking down the curriculum. And so early movers in education realized, oh my gosh, we can take all of this and put it online and it's pretty close to free, right? So the Udacities and the Courseras of the world said they created, you know, what was then the the MOOC movement, the massive open online course where (laughs) we can get a professor from Harvard to record his lecture. And then it's just like everybody's going to Harvard. And turns out it wasn't quite that simple, right? Because what the most important pieces of education weren't actually the lecture. Turns out, you know, we've had libraries for a really long time. Access to the material itself, I mean, it's way better than not having access to the material for sure, but that in and of itself isn't necessarily what caused learning for the vast majority of students. And I think, you know, similarly, you have the problem set of how do you get the right type of data and then how do you you know, eventually in the long run, you know, everything's totally automated and totally responsive. And then in the meantime, you're building up, you know, buckets of community or one-on-one assistance that is, you know, scaled. So I think of, you know, a future fit where when I worked out with a personal trainer in San Francisco, he must have been the most bored person in the world because he's watching me, you know, do bench press and he's watched a hundred people do bench press he's sitting there full time to see if there's anything that I do wrong so that he can correct my form or he can, if I say, oh, you know, my shoulder's tired, he can adjust. But now 
you know, after everything kind of went remote, I actually hired a trainer from Tonal. So Tonal is a kind of wall mounted weightlifting system. And then I basically send him data from my eating and my Tonal and my Peloton. And if I you know, do other workouts, I like I give him all of the data um, and he can adjust, you know, in a one on one way to that. And he has he was shocked that, you know, we actually have way better data on this than, you know, we did when we were in the gym, even when he was sitting there watching me full time. He doesn't have to sit there and watch me full time anymore. But certainly, you know, that versus me sending him a log of here's the workout I did in a physical gym, it's just night and day difference. And so I'm watching that kind of develop. And now there's a you know, community of a few dozen people that are doing that along with him. And it, it like, you know, you get a community aspect. And, you know, at the end of the day, I feel like I have, and it, this costs me a fraction of what a personal trainer used to cost. And it's now flexible. If one of us gets sick, I don't have to like, you know, I, Mike was my personal trainer in San Francisco. I'd have to text him or, you know, if he was on vacation, like I just wouldn't work out that week because I didn't. You know, I wasn't at the point where I knew what to do yet. I think combining those things, you know, eventually maybe that gets fully automated to where my tonal just knows exactly what I've eaten and it knows all of my workout. Then it's going to say, hey, you need to, you know, we're going to swap out this Bulgarian split curl to, you know, whatever that is. But in the meantime, getting that data, getting people into communities, having scaled help is, you know, 10x better than the old way of you had, you know, you either had to go it alone or, you know, buy a book or pay somebody incredibly high rates to do one-on-one trade. Not rates didn't have to be incredibly high. It's expensive to do anything one-on-one with somebody sitting there watching you. So yeah, I'm really excited to see what that level of software looks like where it probably starts out, you know, it's adaptive enough to bucket you. And then you have, you know, a human in the loop as necessary. And over time, sure, you know, it's automated and it's, it's fully, you know, the marginal cost is zero. We're not at that level yet, but what we can start to do is have everybody the experience of a full or the, the outcome of a full-time personal trainer for a tenth of the price or even some, in my opinion, slightly better outcomes than a full-time personal trainer for a tenth of the price. And that's really, really cool. That's the power of technology. That's the power of Something like a Lambda school has the power of something like a levels that when you can when you can do that, it opens up entire worlds of opportunity that just were not there before. When you were designing the business model, did you receive pushback when people were like, man, like that's not gonna work? Cause like you were a you're entering oh, yeah. a stagnant industry. Like let's just say the institution of universities didn't change for a hundred years. And then you go through the batch in the YC batch in 17 and everyone's like, man, what are you trying to do? This doesn't make sense. I ask because one thing that it comes up in conversation where we never want to be incentivized to sell CGMs, right? We never want to be incentivized to sell something to people. Like our mission is strictly to educate the world about metabolic health. And the more awareness we can create, the more behavior change we can make in the world by empowering people to really like own have ownership over not just their data, but information and spread that information. We happen to be, the byproduct is like, we happen to have CGMs. If you want to buy them, great. Right. The goal with it is we're trying to align our incentives, uh, like our incentive being the goal being educate the world about metabolic health, which means strip away the economic incentive. So we receive 
not necessarily pushback, but people just think like it's a wild model to take where we're saying, hey, there's a membership model. And you did something from an economic perspective where it's like, we'll take the risk. Like we're going to do everything for you. And then you can just pay us back once you get a job, if you get a job. It's very, very different. So were there things that you moved the knobs or massaged the levers along the way to say, hey, here's how we figured it out to make the economics work? Yeah, I think, I mean, to answer your original question, yeah, everybody thought we were freaking crazy, right? You know, originally I went to other schools and I was like, hey, you should do everything online. And they're like, no, online doesn't work. Like we, oftentimes their incentives were, you know, they're looking at their classroom and like, hey, we should try this online thing. And then they would automatically go all the way to like, well, if we're trying this online thing, let's just like upload everything that we do. Let's film three months worth of classes and put it on a platform and let students go through it. And, you know, we can charge half of what we charge and that'll be it. And then they would do that and realize, you know, nobody would do it. Like, you know, you could get somebody to pay for it, but they weren't going to go through all the classes because it's just a soulless, difficult journey to, you know, spend three months on your own behind a computer with no help and no community whatsoever, trying to get through a very difficult, like basically code boot camps tried to build themselves into a MOOC and then found that they had all the same problems that, that MOOCs had. MOOCs being massive online open courses, kind of what, what I referred to earlier. Side note, that acronym has always, <laughs> has always irked me. It is, it is the <laughs> byproduct of the late 2000, early 2010s. There was just something about MOOC that I just couldn't get behind. Yeah, it's, it's funny that like it was, it was a hot space for a while. And yeah, like, yeah. at the end of the day, it was like, let's record all of our lectures and put them on the internet. Like, that's crazy. Um, that MOOC, like everyone would refer to it and you're like, why don't we just call it online learning? That seems a little yeah. bit easier. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then, no, I think we're going through something similar. I mean, there's a stroke of branding genius from some folks saying there's a cohort-based course, which is really just saying it's an online but live thing. Like it's not, it's not a MOOC. That's what they're really trying to get away from. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. So, so we'd go to the schools and they would say, hey, online doesn't work. Say, okay, I can't prove you wrong yet, but I think you uploading all of your lectures does not constitute a good faith effort in making online learning work, right? And they'd be like, yeah, you know, that's, that, was, that was always like the 10th thing on their priority list. And so it never got the attention it needed. Nobody was focused on it. And it would just kind of go away. And then we said, also, we want to do something that's completely free up front. And you only pay if you get a job. And like, I mean, not only from a, from a financial standpoint, did people like, the, you know, obviously that's, there, right? Like, well, you know, if only our graduates who get hired pay us, then that's a very different economic model than every student who walks in the door pays us. But one of the things that schools were most concerned about was, you know, the way that I know a student is actually committed is when they write that $15,000 check. Until they've made a payment, I have no way of knowing whether they're, you know, signed up for actually doing the work. And, you know, if a student's not signed up for doing the work, they're not going to make it. And so we, you know, we spent a lot of time that that's honestly been the most difficult piece of Lambda School is figuring out who is there for the right reasons and who actually has the right level of dedication. Because, you know, it's so easy to sign up for something that's free. MOOCs did experience that to a lesser extent where like I signed up for a dozen MOOCs that I took. 30 minutes of, and I was never actually serious, right? Like I, I wasn't ever going to finish them. I was just, you know, dabbling. But now, you know, for Lambda School, we're going to put tens of thousands of dollars into, 
of investment into those people. Like, what if they're not serious? And I, you know, that's not just a Lambda School problem. That's, you know, colleges have that problem. Y Combinator has that problem where not every company that's, that can get through the filter for Y Combinator is actually serious about, you know, starting a company. Some of them, it's like, hey, let's, you know, Y Combinator will pay me a year's salary to do this little side project and then I'm going to bounce. You know, I think for Y Combinator, it doesn't really matter because if you have Stripe, then at the end of the day, you can fund everything else and it's fine. Um, but for us, that wasn't our, you know, that's not our model. So we found a few things over time. Required pre-course work does a really good job of filtering people out. We start students now in like the first, and, and for us, the big thing is it's not even will they do the work, the coursework in the school. It's will they, are they serious about getting a job afterwards? And we have had a non-trivial, if everybody who attended Lambda School was serious about getting a job afterwards, we would be like, we'd be set. We'd be financially very, very sustainable. We'd be profitable. Uh, that hasn't been the case to date. And I don't want to share numbers, but the, the number of people who just fundamentally never look for a job and were never intent on looking for a job was way higher than I would have guessed. I figured, you know, if you're going to spend a thousand hours in a course, you're going to go look for a job afterwards, but no. So um, what do on, people do? Like what's, what, I don't understand it. Like it's. Uh, they just go back to what they were doing before or they're like, yeah, this is cool. I, I'm really interested in it and I got a free education. Or sometimes it's less direct than that. Sometimes it's, yeah, I'm going to take like a few weeks off and you know, I just finished this really grueling course. I'm going to take a few weeks off and then I'll look for a job. And then, you know, you reach out to him a few weeks later and like, yeah, I'll start in a few more weeks. And, you know, before you know it, six months has gone by. They haven't written a line of code in six months and they're back at their old life, right? Like the difficult part of Lambda School isn't teaching people to code necessarily. It's a lifestyle change. So we actually, you know, have to bet on people being able to make a complete lifestyle change. Some people are closer, but, you know, think about if, you know, if a personal trainer were incentive only made money if you lost weight, like they can, they can have the best program ever. They can nag you all the time about making sure you're working out. But then if you, you know, if you're eating bad on the other side, you're not going to move the needle. So we're, we're discovering over time that there are ways we can filter for that. But in, in the long run, I think really it comes down to if you can get a student to financially commit to do that, then we can offer way more. Um, we can actually reduce the tuition when it does work. We can offer stronger guarantees. So it's aligned incentives have to be a two-way street. And I think we started out by saying, we're going to guarantee everything and a student has to guarantee nothing. And we learned that if we can get just a little bit of skin in the game from a student, you know, we can place pretty much everybody in that world. So we'll, we'll have to see how that plays out in the long run. But depending on when this podcast comes out, there may be uh, innovations that have launched by then where we're saying, look, actually, you know, we can make your monthly payments really low and we can make your cost of tuition even lower than what we charge today if you're willing to sign up to look for a job and like base what they pay on whether or not they look for a job. We'll have to see how that turns out. But I, in many ways, that's the final problem for Lambda School. And if we can solve that, then everything else is, it will still keep improving on everything else, but that's the last problem to solve. 
Interesting. That's almost like taking the behavioral economics lens where you're like, get them to commit to something, which is just like, I could like literally sign your name that says, I will search for a job once I complete the coursework. And just by giving that nudge up front, like that might change behavior in the long run. One of my, you know, the classic Peter Thiel, like what's something that you believe that is not widely held by, you know, other folks. One thing that I have noticed that this is super you know, you're not supposed to say this in an education space, but extrinsic motivation is a blunt instrument, but it is very, very powerful and oftentimes 10 times more powerful than intrinsic motivation, which is, I think intrinsic motivation is incredible when it's there, but it's very difficult to stoke. And we've seen like extrinsic motivation absolutely works. And I think educators are one example that's a little bit silly, but School that I visited had, you know, it was a private school that was pretty expensive. And they spent years trying to figure out how to get students to put away their phones and like, you know, be alert and attentive. And they viewed it as, you know, for a long time, like, this is our challenge. If we're not more engaging than whatever's on TikTok, then like we need to make the school more engaging. And they spent you know, a long time working on that. And then they tried an experiment once that was literally... You know, if you agree to put your phone in this box when you come in the door and not touch it until you leave, at the end of the week, we'll buy you a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich. And participation of not like phone usage went from everybody using a phone to nobody using a phone overnight. And is that a you know blunt instrument, a $3 chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A in order to cause students to do that? Yes. But then you can watch outcomes shift in a way that I think educators would be nervous to understand how much motivation a $3 chicken sandwich can provide a 12-year-old. Is that a blunt instrument? Yes, but at the end of the day, I'm pretty outcomes-oriented, and if giving a student a chicken sandwich will make them way better at math, I'm not morally opposed to giving them a chicken sandwich. That's something that I had underestimated, the importance and the power of extrinsic motivators versus entirely intrinsic. You got to get Dan Pink or Dan Ariely to do a little bit of research around that one. Yeah. The funny thing is, though, with extrinsic motivation, if somebody's earning like $30,000 a year, let's just say, and they see all these community stories of people, like the reality is engineering jobs command at all levels. They obviously command different amounts, but at entry level, they're still commanding such a big delta between $30,000 and whatever that N is, depending on the company that you go to, whether it's a startup or uh, we'll call it like a blue chip tech company or something in between. The reality is the delta is just so big that even if you are intrinsically motivated to do the work, it's like if you could go from making $30,000 a year to 40000 by going through Lambda School, like there wouldn't be enough extrinsic motivation for people to be like, man, I'll do that because they're like, my life isn't going to change that drastically. It's that they can see that they can go from, and that's what I love that you were doing back to the, um, if you can get students to write a check, is that you were finding ways to reach underserved communities. And it's something that we think about a lot where right now the price of CGMs and a lot of health-related products are just, they're inaccessible to many people, especially the people who need the most. Same thing with if you're talking about underserved communities that might not have opportunities 
to be exposed to like, let's say a tech scene and you're saying, Hey, here's Lambda school. Like you can get in it. You, I don't know if you're still doing this where you'd like say, just put up your hand, let us know if you need the computer, like we'll help you out. But that was kind of the beautiful thing where you're saying like, let's strip away all of the things, all of the barriers and just give you opportunity. If you're intrinsically motivated enough to do the work, to find the job. But like, that was such a beautiful thing. And it's something that we think about a lot of as we scale, how are we going to continue to make sure that health is not a privilege and health is equal opportunity. And I think the same thing goes with education. Like education should not be a privilege. Education should be equal opportunity, right? If you want to do it, you do it. I think for you guys, it's easy to underestimate the extent to which that's true today. Uh, Like, you know, I know people who spend $6,000 a month going to a doctor and getting all of their labs run and they are perfectly in line with everything and they can adjust whatever they need to. You know, one way of thinking about levels is it gives that level of data to somebody for, you know, a tiny fraction of the price, right? And it's not free yet. I'm sure it may not ever be free or it'll have to be, you know, someone will have to pay for it somehow. But that democratization is happening, right? When I'm looking at levels, I get data that is better than someone who wants to pay a doctor. You know, I've I've looked at some of these, you know, hey, I'm going to do a test every week and monitor all of your vitals. It can be 5,000 a month. It can be 10,000 a month. Like that's not crazy at all. And there's some doctors who only take, you know, a handful of patients and they, they monitor you like a, I mean, it goes beyond what a personal trainer would do, right? But there are a lot of people that do that. And Levels is giving that level of data away for a fraction of that, a tiny, tiny fraction of that price. And I think that's some of the opportunity. On the incentive side, I think it's also important to, and this is something we've learned, you know, in the early days, if I would talk to a student and say, you know, look, you know, our median income is X, you will be able, you know, if you do this and you do the work, you'll be able to get a job for X. If you have not been, there were people who literally did not believe me. Like, you know, one of the earliest hires ever was, you know, working in a factory before Lambda School. He was an African-American gentleman, a single father. And he came to me and said, you know, I really want to learn how to code, but I know I'm not going to be able to get a job for more than 50K a year. So like, I just want you to understand up front that like, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to continue the charade with me. I understand that like the way the world works is, and I think he either had a GED or had not completed high school or something like that. But he was one of the top performers on our pre-course, you know, code challenge stuff. And he'd been really interested in, in kind of learning on his own for a while and was just kind of stuck. And, you know, he ended up getting a job for $85,000 a year. And like, you know, now I'm sure he's, I haven't checked recently, but I'm positive he's well into the six figures now. And, you know, completely life-changing shift. But part of it for him was that he had not been exposed enough to literally understand that that was possible. Like he literally, until, I think, you know, with wealth in the United States, that's often something that happens where until you've met somebody who has done X, you don't realize that that is a thing. I mean, I still think about, you know, I grew up in a lower middle class, you know, town where I thought a six-figure job was just FU money. That was like so, that was such an unfathomably large amount of money. And you kind of like, you get exposure over time to people with, you know, different levels of wealth and you look at their career paths. And, you know, now I've, I've met billionaires and like far beyond 
thinking that that's a possibility. I didn't realize when I was a kid that there were billionaires who were just, you know, tech founders who had a really good idea and it hit and they worked really hard. Like growing up, I thought you had to be evil or some like crazy super G. Like, I, you know, I didn't know that that was possible or normal. I'm not saying that, you know, billionaire is something that's easy for anybody to aspire to. That, you know, a million things have to go right for that to be true. But I, you know, I was talking to one of our investors about how do I convince these students that these jobs are real? And he was like, well, what if I told you, you know, came to you when you were 12 and I said, hey, I will give you $15 million if you can place in the top 10 at Wimbledon and you can, I'll give you all the resources you need. I'll give you all of the training. I run a test on you and say, look, you have the athletic ability to place top 10 in Wimbledon. Would that be easy for you to do? And obviously, you know, for me, no, I, you know, yeah, I played a little bit of tennis growing up, but I, you know, top 10 in Wimbledon is like, you have to be an absolute world-class out of this world performer. And he was like, well, that's how it feels to some of the students you're talking to saying, you know, you can end up making six figures. And so the promise of, hey, you know, spend a year of your life, you know, working on this. And then if you don't get it, you know, I'll give you a refund that feels good, but like it's far enough away. And if you've never seen it, it's so difficult to believe that, you know, you need to do a better job of breaking it down into smaller chunks. Whereas, you know, as an example, if I told you, hey, I'll give you $1,000 if you play tennis for 40 hours this week. As a 12-year-old, would you have done that? Absolutely. So some of it's, I know it's interesting to break down. At Lambda School, we know what it takes to get a job. I can tell you exactly what you need to do in order to be hired as a software engineer. And not every, you know, even though we have not charged anything until you get there, it's still difficult for some people to believe. And so one of the things I'm also interested in is, can I put more skin in the game in some way and break it down into smaller chunks or put even more on the back end of, look, if you do all of this stuff that I'm telling you is required to get a job and you don't get hired, I will literally write you a check. I don't know that I'll be able to pay you minimum wage starting out. You know, the math may not add up, but I can take the risk out. I can say, I'll pay you couple thousand dollars, but it doesn't work out. I'm trying to, you know, there's some regulatory reasons that make that difficult, but how can I make it so that you don't have to believe me? How can I make it so that you are just going to do the, how can I take the risk out? Not just from a, you know, do I have to pay anything perspective, but how can I continue to de-risk to where it is now just so obvious that I need to do these simple things and even if it doesn't lead to the outcome that Austin and Lambda School are telling me it leads to, I'm going to do them because either way, I end up in a better spot. So that, you know, that's kind of going beyond what we're doing now to, you know, at the end of the day, Lambda School will have more than a 100% guarantee. We'll have, you know, might start with 110%, might get to 150% of tuition, where if you do all this stuff that we tell you to do and you don't get hired, maybe we'll write you a $10,000 check one day. And then maybe, you know, that eliminates all of the risk and you just do what you need to do. That's the level that, I, that we're trying to get to now. And I think that is incredibly interesting to me. How do you get to that next level of de-risking? And you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to if you know that action X causes outcomes Y, how can you incentivize people to do action X? You know, that's a fundamental human problem that I think is, is really interesting. Yeah, because you're filling a gap that is massively needed in the world, which is just like there's a 
<laughs> we, we don't have enough software developers. We need more people to be astute in all aspects of engineering, right? Data science, like name it. And it's like, we need to be able to empower people to do this. And so the more that you can surround people with other people who've seen, like seen it firsthand and they go, I can believe this. The caveat to it is it's really hard to believe. Like when you, sometimes you'll tweet out things and you're like, I'm finding it hard to believe this right now, even though it is true. It's just like, I'll probably misstep on the exact nuance of the tweet, but I'm sure you've shared tweets that have said the Delta is $192,000 in their previous salary versus their starting salary. Like something absurd where somebody like you're sitting there going, I know this happened, but I'm trying, I'm trying to figure out like, how can I believe this is happening? Cause it just is happening. And that's where you're starting to create this movement where it's like the more people that can see like, Hey, this is real, bring it into like health and wellness, same thing. When people are seeing like, not that CGMs are a weight loss or that we encourage people to use them for weight loss. It's just the byproduct of being able to manage your own health and wellness and understand that data. Like there are members who have lost a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds and people who've spent 10 or more years, 20 years in some cases, trying to lose weight. And all of a sudden they go, wait, it was just a matter of me like having enough data to truly understand that feedback. Same thing with what you're saying with your trainer, where it's like, it doesn't matter how much your trainer is watching you do put or bench presses. It's like, there's the actual data to be more objective about like what was breaking and like, let's fix that. It's such yeah. an incredible thing. You've been thing. flying blind in so many, I mean, especially in nutrition and like health. I mean, we're flying so incredibly blind that, what was it? 20 years ago, we had the food pyramid, which is just like flat out wrong. And I mean, so it's not surprising to me at all that there are people that once they're able to analyze their data in real time, realize, you know, and, and it is, nutrition is even more so because it's so unique to each person. And my metabolic response to one food, the exact same amount of food will be completely different than my wife's. Even if we work out exactly the same, anyway, you get what I'm saying. I think, you know, part of the power of what we're doing in getting more data is eliminating the uncertainty to where I know exactly when one of the reasons losing weight is so hard is because you're not actually sure and at any time, right? And the, the times when, and not just losing weight, like any aspect of health where you're not sure if anything is working and the change can be so incremental over time, it can take you a month to figure out if what you're doing is actually making a difference. So getting that into more real-time, more interactive data actually helps. It can help people understand that if I eat X versus Y, what is the delta between those two things? What, will, what is my fork in the road actually like? What, how will my life change what, based on whether I eat a bowl of ice cream or a hamburger, right? You know, for some people, eating a hamburger may be totally fine. And for some people, eating a bowl of ice cream may be totally fine. And we just don't know. So I think... The empowerment that is unlocked by giving people knowledge and information about what the world looks like is, you know, as investor in levels, I think it's a very noble mission and I'm glad to be a tiny part of it. <laughs>